Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens and sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good to have you back in the studio. Yes, good evening, Brother Nathan. And it's good to be back in the program and uh, in the studio. I'd like to thank those evening, this evening who will be listening to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home. And let me start out the program with contact information. Again, this is not just a one-way conversation. It's not just a teaching program. We want interaction. So you can interact with us a number of ways. The first way you can is through calling 1-268-462-7420. That number will put you live on the air, and we will put you live on the air when you call 1-268-462-7420. If you don't want to speak live on the air, not a problem at all. We still look forward to your interaction. You can send a WhatsApp or a text message to 1-268-782-1454. Text or WhatsApp 1-268-782-1454. You can email us at crlthatstruth.com. At gmail.com. That's all one word, no space, no apostrophe. I'll spell it out for you. C-R-L-T-H-A-T-S-T-R-U-T-H at gmail.com. And the final way that you can interact with us is through Facebook Live. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, And then right there on your device, you can comment in the comment section your question, your concern. And if you have don't have a question, but you have a suggested topic that you would like us to discuss in a future episode of That's Truth, please share it by calling in, share it by WhatsApp or text, share it by email or on Facebook Live, and we would be glad to entertain and pray about covering the topic that you suggest. If you have suggested a topic in the past, we have it written down. We may not have gotten to it yet, but it is on a list to get to it. Now, Pastor, it has been a couple of weeks since um, we were discussing the topic of the Holy Spirit, and there's a number of questions that have come in already from over the last couple of weeks, and I will start out with those. Some of them pertain to what you were discussing in relation to the Holy Spirit, and we'll pick up with that first question is good night to everyone when ananias spoke he spoke to peter but because peter was full of the holy spirit when he lied to peter he lied to the holy spirit what are your thoughts pastor well i think that is precisely what happened in the book of acts uh, chapter five uh so i don't have any dispute about that um 
the point we were laboring to point out is that um, Peter not only said you'd lie to the uh, you lie to the Holy Spirit, but he also said you'd lie to God, and we were saying that uh, the antecedent of lying to the Holy Spirit uh, was God. So we're just trying to say that uh, the fact lying to the Holy Spirit is same as lying to God. It brought the equation that you're referring to. Uh, the fact that the Holy Spirit is, is God. And when I say God, he's one of the members of the Godhead. That's what we're trying to, to say in relation to the fact that he was deity. So we don't. I don't have any dispute about uh, what is being said there. I think that's correct. And the next comment or question says, pertaining to tongues, why are pastors always seeming to forget about the scripture that says, forbid not the speaking of tongues? Or the scripture that says, He that speaketh in tongues speaketh not to men, but unto God. However, in the Spirit, he speaketh mysteries. I, I don't think that, well, I don't try to ignore that. I have an interpret, interpretational view, view on the matter of gifts. I am a cessationist. I think as well, when the scriptures were completed, there are certain gifts that are not needed, uh, like the gift of prophecy, uh, and then Paul also said that tongues would cease. So at some point in time, tongues is going to cease. The question is, when did that cease, etc. I just happen to believe that when the scriptures were completed, there was no need any further for tongues. So it's a matter of interpretation. But I have never, um, even though that's my view, I still agree with you that Paul says, uh, uh, don't forbid people from speaking in tongues. So my position has always been, if you're going to allow uh, tongues to be spoken within the church, uh, you have to follow the guidelines that Paul lays down uh, in the Word. And that is what I've been insisting on again and again. In those instructions are given in verse 27 to 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And Paul sets out the procedure if you're going to use tongues. He said, number one, two or three at the most. So the whole church cannot be speaking in tongues. So remember that when Paul gives his instructions, these are not human opinion. This is Paul speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who guided him to give these instructions to the church. So uh, when you, what we have a lot of times in modern churches, when you go into them and they speak in tongues, you have uh, what you might call a, a, almost bacchanal is going on, confusion, pandemonium, chaos. You can't even think what is going on. And as Paul will point out in the same passage, if uh, a non-believer coming to the church and everybody speaking down, Paul said, they will say, you're mad. And that's the way I felt. I've been to one church uh, already where that has happened, and that was when, when I was in Barbados. And I felt that, but again, follow the instructions, two or three at the most. Secondly, Paul said, let it be done in course. And what that means, in order. One speak first, the second speak, and then the third speak. Not all three speaking at the same time. This is being totally violated. Uh, as a standard within the modern Pentecostal and charismatic movement. And then there must be an interpreter. If there's no interpreter, Paul said, let that person keep silent in the church. So uh, my argument is, if you are not a cessationist, you are continuous, you believe that these gifts, all these gifts continue in this, this dispensation. Well, follow the procedure. If you're going contrary to the procedure and the standard that Paul has set, you are not going in line with the Holy Spirit. It's contrary to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture. That's the argument that I've uh, in, uh, insisted on in, in dealing with this whole matter. I would like to say a few other thoughts on, on this whole matter of tongues. Look, Paul was deeply concerned that the most carnal church in the New Testament, Paul said, I could not speak unto you as spiritual, but as carnal. 
a church with division, litigation, church with incest where the church is boasting, uh, a church that is violating uh, the liberties that belong to uh, young believers and uh, just a church out of total chaos and disorder. This is the church that um, is a church full of emotionalism. Uh, they would like to, like to exhibit uh, the spectacular uh, there seem to be a lot of competition going on in the church, a lot of braggadocio. So the Apostle Paul is trying to give certain guidelines in regard to this whole matter. And Paul points out a few things. Number one, the whole purpose of spiritual gifts, Paul explained in chapter 14, verse 3 and 5, chapter 14, verse 12 and 26, is all about edification. A spiritual gift is given to the believer to function within the, whole, within the church to edify the believer. If that gift is not edifying the believer, that gift must not be used within the church. And that's what Paul is arguing about these people who are speaking in tongues with all this, everybody trying to push this whole whole matter. And Paul is saying, you know, if you don't have an interpreter, you can't edify anybody, so keep silent in the church. That's the direction he's given. So every gift that God gives to the believer is designed to help edify believers within the church. If it doesn't help in that function, it should be halted and desisted and uh, suppressed because there's no need for it in the church. That is given clearly in Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3 and 5, verse 12 and verse 26. The, th the expression used that praying in the Spirit, that's not referring to praying in the Holy Spirit because the, in the Greek language, it's an illocative case which has to do with the, the realm in which it is. It's, it's dealing with the, the human spirit. As a matter of fact, uh, Nathan, if you could just read for me... Um, uh, verses 5, 13, 14, and 15 of First Corinthians chapter 14. First Corinthians 14, 5. Yeah, 13, 5, 13, and then 14 and 15. Okay, First Corinthians 14, 5 says, I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edify. Right, and read verse 15, 14, and 15, 14 to 16. 14 to 16 says, For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is Notice it's my spirit mm -hmm. that is praying. It's talking about the human spirit. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. And the point that people get mixed up with, that they say, well, we are praying in the spirit, Holy Spirit, but that's not what Paul is saying. I'm praying in my spirit, with my spirit. My spirit is praying. Here's Paul is saying, look, there don't, there, I, I, you cannot deny that uh, speaking in tongues is a gift. All right? If you're saying that what you're doing is real and authentic, Paul is saying, if that is true, you are praying in your spirit. You're not praying in the Holy Spirit. That's the point I'm trying to get across. Mm -hmm. People think that when you're praying in, you're praying in tongues, you're praying in the Holy Spirit. Paul said, it's in my spirit, I'm praying. So I, I, okay, go ahead. It's an interesting point. What is it then... I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Verse 16, Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say Amen at the giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? few things there. First of all, 
And the, clearly from verse 14 and 15, Paul is talking. So every time he used the word spirit, with the spirit, he's praying with his spirit. And with my understanding, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about uh, the Holy Spirit. And uh, the other thing is that notice that <clears throat> if this is real speaking in tongues and you're praying in the spirit, what are you doing? You're giving thanksgiving and praise. The person doesn't understand you're giving thanksgiving and praise. So uh, that's the point that Paul is making. If you're speaking in tongues, there's no interpreter. So I just think I need to clear that up, that the, the idea that people speaking in tongues are praying in the Holy Spirit, that's not what Paul is teaching. You're praying with your human spirit. If you if it's authentic, if it's real, uh, and it's a genuine gift from God, you're praying with your spirit, okay? But the, the point that Paul makes throughout the whole matter, and this gives you Paul's... Um, practice. Look at verse 18 and 19, how, what, what Paul says there. Verse 18 says, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than ye all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. I mean, anybody who wants to talk what is genuine spirituality, I mean, you can't get a, a more spiritual giant than the Apostle Paul. But while he's in the church, he sees no purpose of exercising the gift of tongues if it is not going to produce any kind of edification. So he'd rather speak five words where the people understand what he's saying than a thousand words in an unknown tongue because nobody benefits. Paul's central purpose is edifying, building up the body of Christ. He's not about showmanship and ostentation and braggadocia and, and pretension and, and trying to get the limelight. That's not what it's about in the church. And that's what Paul is using as an example. And then look at verse 21 to verse 23. Sorry, the purpose of saying of, of tongues. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Verse 22, Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but rather to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. What verse do you want me to go through? Uh, about your 23. You got 23. Uh, 23 is right now. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that we are mad? I mean, two things there, quite frankly. Paul makes it very clear that tongues really is for the unbelievers, not for the church. So why why would a person uh, make tongues central in the church? And again, this is because of the error that's been made of linking, speaking in tongues with the filling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he told them uh, they're, they're conflating two things that are not there. And that has led to the real false um, reintroduction of this whole matter of tongues and making it... Uh, the sibboleth or the standard by which you judge your spirituality and if you don't speak in tongues you're not filled with the spirit you're not baptized with the Holy Spirit but uh, Paul is making it clear and that's why on the book of Acts chapter 20 Acts, Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came you had people from all over the world and that was a sign to the unbelievers many people were converted as a result do we not hear these men who are Galileans speak in our own tongue people from Mesopotamia and Syria all eight or nine different places that are mentioned so um, it's not that uh, we are against the idea that tongues may be possible. As I said, I'm a cessationist on this matter. Uh, but again, uh, I accept the fact that Paul says, uh, forbid not to speak in tongues. But if 
there is going to be legitimate use of tongues, we must follow the procedure and the regulation that Paul gave in verse 27 and 28. If those regulations are not being followed, this type of tongue is not in line with what the Holy Spirit wants. It is contrary to the Holy Spirit, contrary to the Word, and therefore it cannot be of God. It's as simple as that. I don't know why people don't apply logic to these things. If the Bible is the Word of God, the Holy Spirit inspired to give us the Word of God. What God has given is for the church. It's directed. When we go contrary to what God has given in His Word, we are going contrary to the mind of God. So therefore we can't say it's sanctioned by God. Simple logic, but uh, today Christianity... Uh, like the world has become totally illogical. You can't use reason any longer with people because emotion rule and what somebody else says who takes on an authority that uh, is contrary to, to the Bible as being supreme leads people down a rabbit's trail and into error. Uh, one of those verses you had me read, First Corinthians fourteen twenty one, <clears throat> struck me. It says, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. Is that referencing, do you think, the fact that these were known tongues? Like if you were speaking to someone well, who yeah, speaks they, French? Uh, tongues is always known tongues. Mm-hmm. The, the, the word glossolalia that's used there only refers to a dialect that people that people speak. Um, the, the passage is quoted from Isaiah. Isaiah had prophesied that God would speak to Israel to let him know that he's bringing, bringing about a new dispensation, quite frankly, that the, he's now going to call out the Gentiles, etc., etc. Okay. So Isaiah had prophesied that God would speak to Israel, and they would know when God was doing this work, when he was bringing about a new order, which is called the church. Well, it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, a new dispensation where he's, he's going to lay aside Israel, and, and he would use Gentiles to create jealousy so Israel again return to the Lord. Read uh, Romans chapter 11 in that regard. So this is certainly the language. And then you've got the example in in, um, Acts chapter 2 when it happened on the day of Pentecost. This heard them speak in their language. It's a dialect. It's a human language. It's not some aesthetic Holy Spirit speech that uh, nobody can understand. It's not what they call heavenly language or uh, God language. That's not what the word glossolalia means. It's always a human language or human dialect. Thank you to all who have sent in questions thus far. If you've sent one in tonight, we have a backlog of questions from previous weeks, so we will get to your question in the order that it came in. If you have a question and you haven't sent it in yet or you want to call and be put live on the air, you can call 1-268-462-7420. That'll put you live on the air. If you want to WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268 782-1454. If you want to send it on Facebook, you can send it, go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and right there on your device, you can comment your question in the comment section, and it will be put in the queue of questions, and we will ask it in the order that it came in. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 749. The name of the program is That's Truth. It is a live, interactive program every Tuesday evening for 90 minutes here on the Radio Lighthouse with Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Antigua. The next question that has come in, Pastor, says, The Holy Spirit was the one who hovered over the face of the earth when God spoke. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit without measure, so he was able to call Lazarus from the tomb. I believe if a pastor has never experienced the Holy Spirit... When he is asked about the Holy Spirit, he should admit it, that he is not able to, and stop denying that they obviously don't understand, and instead of relying on head knowledge. 
Well, I'm a little bit confused. I'm trying to see the connection between what we're saying because uh, I don't have any dispute with the fact that the Holy Spirit hovered over. The Bible makes that quite, quite clear in the book of Genesis chapter 1. So, And also in other parts, as we will show you later, that the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. No question about that. There's no question that Christ, when he was on earth, lived as a man under the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything that he did in relation to himself, he always did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. When he did something miraculous, uh, where he would use his deity to help others, but to, to live as a man, he himself lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, And he, of course, that sets a pattern for us, living and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So I don't see the, the problem there. So I'm, I was trying to see what the, the idea about, um, if you don't know the power, I'm not too sure what that all means. But I would, I would say, um, quite frankly, that um, I don't know if it's connected with the tongues matter that the person mentioned before, because I was saying that uh, tongues is practiced today within the normal assembly is, 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 not, is not in line with Scripture. If that's what they mean, I don't apologize for that. I do believe that, that unless you follow the pattern and the procedure Paul gave, which is clearly laid down, that's, that's the Word of God, that's the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God, and gave to the church certain instructions in terms of the use of gift of, of, any t- in, uh, of tongues. And any church or any pastor that violates that and goes against it is going against God, going against God's Word, and therefore acting contrary to God's Word. And that means that what the practice is wrong and uh, cannot be sanctioned, uh, should not be sanctioned by any church or any pastor. That's the point I'm making. And I, there's nothing to retract there. That's the biblical stand, and uh, it's there in the Scriptures, and I take my stand in Scripture. Next question is in relation to John chapter 8 and verse 15. And I'll start out by reading that verse. And these are the words of Jesus. John eight fifteen, Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. Pastor, in John eight fifteen, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You judge by human standards. Uh, if I believe Pastor Murphy... I believe if Pastor Murphy had ever experienced the Holy Spirit's awesome presence, he would not judge other people. Again, I think this is relating to the idea that I am against the modern way of speaking in tongues. I, I hope I'm right about that. If they're not, the person needs a calling and, and clarify that. But let me just put this. Um, there are passages in Scripture that tell us that we should not judge. And what it really means is that we should not judge according to the flesh. We should not judge unrighteously. But uh, that's only one side of the teaching. And remember that our Lord is dealing with, the, in most of these cases, with the Pharisees who are very rigid and, and very uh, legalistic and uh, went beyond Scripture in, in putting different strictures on people and always judging people on different type matters because they didn't follow the code that they had established. Uh, so you've got to understand the context. But then in, in, in Scripture as well, we're given clear instructions of believers to use good judgment and to judge righteously look at john seven twenty four, nathan john seven twenty four says judge not according to the appearance but judge righteous judgment it's the same christ that is telling you don't judge according to the judge now how are you going to judge righteously the way you judge righteously is judging things according to scripture mm-hmm. the, the standard of righteousness is the word 
So when you take the Word of God and, and use that as the sibilith or the standard or the canon by which you judge something that's happening, you're judging righteously. You're not judging according to the flesh. You're not judging uh, you know, according to your carnality. You're dealing with, with, with righteousness. So we have a mandate there from our Lord to say, listen, don't judge according to appearances, but judge righteously. And the only standard for righteousness is the Word. So we should judge things by the Word. Go to 1 Corinthians five eleven to 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 15. 11 to 13. 11 to 13. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such and one no eat, no not eat to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do ye not, excuse me, do not ye judge them that are within? And verse 13, But them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Clearly Paul has made a judgment there and is calling for the believers to, to make judgment on who should be part of the fellowship. Uh, and, of course, Paul is making it very, very clear. In chapter 5, you've got the situation with a young man living with incest. The church is so carnal and so corrupt and so tolerant. It is boasting about how tolerant they are to allow a man to live with his stepmother in an illicit relationship. <laughs> Paul is saying, I'm not even there with you. And I tell you, put this young man out. And then he reminds you, you don't judge a person outside the church. You have a right to judge the people in the church. Look at the standard of that the Bible requires you in the Word. These sins that Paul mentioned are things the Bible condemns. So when people are doing those kind of things, you don't suspend judgment on these matters. You judge that these things are wrong, and you deal with them, and, and if you have to put the person out of the church, if they don't repent. So uh, clearly, the mandate is given to the church uh, to judge. The other one that comes to my mind without going to it is Matthew 18. A brother offends you. You come to the thing. You go to the church. Finally, the church has to judge which is right. What do you do with the situation? Listen to the, both sides and then make a judgment. And if they don't hear the church, Paul says what? The Bible says, Jesus said, treat them as a public and a sinner, though they're not saved. Because the church has a right to make those kind of judgments. Look at um, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 to 8. First Corinthians? Chapter, yeah, First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 to 8. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? If you're following along, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 is where we are now. Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame, it is so, that there is not a wise man among you, no, not one that shall be judged, shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Verse 7, Now therefore, now there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? 
Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Yeah, look, the Apostle Paul is, is saying in this particular passage, quite frankly, look, you guys are going to judge the world, you're going to judge angels. What about these things of this life? You're saying that you can't make judgment about the things of this life. And then Paul says, you are so carnal that when you have a thing of this life, you set the most silliest person to make a judgment on these kind of things. Why you don't have a wise man among you? In other words, he's saying, look, choose people who are wise and, and qualified to help you deal with these matters. And the matter of litigation, brother going before court with another brother because of some litigious thing that needs to be done. Paul said that should never be. Uh, Christians should be able to s deal with these matters and get the church involved and get wise Christians involved in helping to, to deal with these kind of matters. Uh, you should get Christians to act as arbitrators when it comes to issues like this, uh, Paul is saying. So again, he's telling you've got to use judgment to know which one is right and which one is wrong. He's given the church that, 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 that um, imperative, basically, that the church is doing this kind of form of judgment. So to say that the Christians shouldn't judge is ludicrous. If you don't properly interpret the Bible, you'll always go down some trail that would lead you to a false interpretation. Look at uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, 13. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 13 says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Again, <laughs> Paul is talking about women wearing a covering, okay, especially married women. And Paul is asking the believers to judge. You judge. I'm saying to you that this is what should happen. But you judge if it is proper for a person to do that. Again, he's giving the believer the right to make judgment. So to say the believer can't judge on these matters is silly, quite silly. And then what other verse? 1 Corinthians 14, 29. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29 reads as follows. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Again, judge what is said. That's what the word is used in the, in the, as well. Same kind of a word. You listen to what the prophets are saying, and you judge what they're saying, whether it's right or wrong. It's like the Bereans, <coughs> where the Apostle Paul went to Berea and started preaching. And they took the scriptures to compare what Paul was saying to see if it's in line with scripture. They're making a judgment based on what Paul is teaching vis-a-vis -vis scripture. That is the believer's prerogative to make judgment based on Scripture. I said one more. Let me just give you one last one. First Thessalonians 5.21. First Thessalonians 5.21 says, But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Again, I, I don't know anybody can read that verse without seeing the believer have to use judgment in testing. I can't test whether same-sex marriage is wrong or right, unless I have some judgment about it. And where do I get my basis of judgment? It's the Word. I can't judge if homosexuality is right or wrong. Where do I get my criteria to decide right or wrong? I go to Scripture. I can't judge if capital punishment is wrong or right. I go to Scripture. That's the standard. Test all things. That's the believer's right. Hold to that which is good. So we've got to use, understand that the idea that is that you can't make judgments on matters is a silly statement to make. And I hope that uh, the person that we are dealing with here would uh, rectify what they're thinking and, and come into line with Scripture in regards to this matter. Our Lord condemns judging by appearance and judging by the flesh. But righteous judgment in according to what, how, whatever teaching aligns with Scripture is the proper basis and the norm by which believers should use uh, Scripture to judge and to make decisions. 
You're listening to That's Truth. It is a live, interactive call-in program here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse every Tuesday evening from 7.30 p.m. until 9 p.m. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.02 p.m., 11.60 a.m., 92.3 f.m., online at radiolighthouse.org. And for this program, you can also join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. If you have a question and you'd like to call in, you can call one 462 7420 That phone number will put you live on the air. If you'd rather not speak live on the air, but you still want to send in your questions via WhatsApp or text message, please send them to 268 782 Thank you to each individual who has sent in a question so far. Our next question... Uh, it says, firstly, is it easier or more difficult for a woman to understand God? Well, look, that depends. And I use the word depends. It depends on what's the spiritual state of the man or woman. A woman who is deeper spiritually than the man is going to understand Scripture better than the man would. Remember that we all have the Holy Spirit. Women have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. So if the wife is or the woman is studying Scripture... If she has a real intimate life with God, an intimate prayer life with God, if the man, no matter who he is, if he doesn't study scripture, he doesn't have a relationship with God, close with God, obviously the woman is going to, the one will have the spiritual insight. So that question, it, it depends on the spiritual state of the person. But because a person of a particular gender is not the basis of spirituality or the standard by which you judge whether the person understands more than a man does. The Bible uh, tells us there's neither male nor female, there's neither free nor bond, and that has to do not with uh, roles, uh, that has to do with our spiritual position before God. The same spirit indwells the man as indwells the woman, but the Bible puts guidelines in terms of roles which uh, we have to be very, very careful about. That's why a woman should not be a pastor. No question about that. Um, so that those are clear biblical, but it has to do with roles. That's why the husband is the head. The woman is not the head of the home. The husband is the head. That's a role, etc. That's why children should obey the parents. The father and the mother, these are the head of the children, etc. You don't reverse those things. So when it comes to roles, they make role distinctions. But when it comes to the matter of spirituality before God, it has to do with one's relationship with God, one's faith in God, and one's dependence upon God. So there's no, there's no, uh, no man, the man, man does not have an unusual um, gift in terms of understanding spiritual truth because he's a male. Uh, in this dispensation, uh, God treats his children the same. And all has to do with the the knowledge of God and the Word of God and the and the closest to God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, women are not at a disadvantage when it comes to spiritual insight. Um, as a matter of fact, it might shock uh, hearing this, but a lot of times the woman in the home is the most spiritual person in most homes. I would I would hazard, I would take that generally speaking. Um, a lot of even in, in Christian homes. The leading spiritual person in the home that uh, pushes for the devotions, pushes for this kind of thing, is a woman. That's a fact. Okay, so um, she doesn't have any disadvantage um, in connection with her standing and her understanding of God vis-a-vis a man. 
Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, good evening. Hi, Mr. Williams. Hi. Good hearing you again, then. You too. How are you? Fine, thanks. Yes, but I good night. Good night. What can we do for you, Brother Williams? Yeah, uh, after, let's see. Let me talk to you. Uh, if you understand somebody living together, seeing their lifestyle, and, and all what they do, you need to see them, and then you're telling them wrong. Is that you, you're judging them? You tell them that their lifestyle they're living, and they're telling you that... Well, I'm a if you're dealing with Christian people, I cannot see that you are uh, you're doing what a Christian brother should do. <laughs> we are all part of one family, and we gotta be all uh, concerned about the spiritual welfare of each other. So, if I am seeing uh, two believers who profess to be Christians, and uh, and they are living in an illicit relationship, they're not married, uh, and, and I depend on my relationship with them. If I'm their friend, uh, and they consider me a friend. I would deem it appropriate to be able to say to them, listen, you know, we're friends, uh, but, you know, this kind of lifestyle is, is unbecoming of a believer. There's nothing wrong in doing that. That's not judging. You're, you're, you're actually saying something that is scriptural, and that's the thing that people need to understand. People that are going contrary to scripture, you have a right to judge right or wrong based on scripture. So I see nothing absolutely wrong. As I think, as a matter of fact, it might be good that you're doing that because they might be getting away figuring it's okay because nobody's saying anything. Somebody's got to rattle the plate, keep the noise, basically, and, and hold people to account. That's where people begin to think, uh, you know, silence is endorsement in a lot of cases where there's evil. Because he, 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 he never got any boat. And... Me and him talking, so I tell him, I tell him about his lifestyle and the way he talking. Tell me about he's saving God. I say, how can you saving God? Yeah. And every minute it's a black stain, it's a curse on him. Tell me, so how can you saving God in, in yeah. that way? Yeah, yeah. Tell me, oh, why don't you judging me? Yeah, well, I don't, I don't mind them judging you. You just, you just tell them what the Word of God said. I've had people, um, I would say, even last year, a lady I was talking to. I can't give any details because people might be able to identify her. But uh, quite frankly, um, she is not married. She's living with a, a guy uh, in, 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 together, been together for a number of years. And uh, she's talking so spiritual when I was talking to her. I said, Madam, you have no spirituality whatsoever. Mm. Uh, I told her that. I said, you, you are living a, a, a godly life and all this talk about religion, you, your religion ain't worth much. And uh, she was offended, but who cares? I don't care when I speak that kind of way to people. I want to wake them up to the fact that you cannot be continuously living in that kind of immoral, sinful life and I be silent, giving the idea that you're okay and you're talking spiritual things to me. You're, you're looking for a response that uh, might shock you. But I, I think, they, look, Christians have bought into the idea that we've got to be tolerant and that uh, we just accommodate evil. Uh, light exposes evil. And that's what we're supposed to do. We do it in a pleasant way. We don't do it in public to embarrass the person, but one-to-one. -one. Surely, we should be able to say that your lifestyle is wrong and your religion is hypocritical because you're going contrary. To, you're telling me that you're serving God, you're living for God, but yet you're willfully living in sin and you want me to endorse that as though you're really a spiritual person? Never happen. Yeah. Never happen. And um, one more thing. Uh, my daughter tells me that every time she gets into deep prayer, Praying hard and deep prayer, so she, and she really had me spirit and praying hard and thing. And as soon as she don't pray, she have a headache, 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 headache. Yeah. 
Well, uh, again, I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I could, uh, well, look, dealing with spiritual warfare. Uh, again, I don't know in deep prayer, I don't know if she takes any, I don't know what her health situation is. I don't know if she takes something, you know, I don't know how long she prays for. I don't know, so I really can't give detail about that. But for example, I mean, if you're exhausted and tired and weary and you, and you and then you're going to this, this thing and you don't take, it's like people who go to fasting, and uh, don't make any preparation whatsoever. Just rush into it, not knowing exactly what they're doing. Uh, and they can actually do some injury to themselves, even though they're doing a spiritual thing. So I don't know, with your daughter's case, I can't speak to that. I don't know exactly what are the conditions that lead her to this deep type of prayer. But again, I would not be surprised if she's a woman of God and she's really uh, gone to this type of prayer. Just ask her to check on, her, uh, on, on on matters before. I mean, make sure she eats something before something. But uh, if it is something that is physical, uh, it is something that had to be dealt medically. But if it is not something physical, she's got spiritual warfare, and therefore she should um, she should count it an indication that she's she's you know she's in this great warfare in contact with God, and uh, try to deal with that. But I don't know. Uh, uh-huh. love, love. Sure. Uh, about fasting and mm-hmm. the Bible never tell you what amount of time how long how often you have to fast no absolutely not that's why I'm not for churches that say we'll do it every every Friday or every Thursday now there might be a time when there's a, a, a situation in church a person who's have cancer or, or you've got to deal with some demonic spirit or something then you call the church together and you can do that but just doing it for the sake of doing it has no merit quite frankly. I think fasting is a personal thing. If your conscience bother you on this whole matter and you feel that you should do fasting, do fasting. But to lay down the condition that everybody should fast on Tuesday on Thursday, I'm not for that whatsoever. The Bible says when you fast, don't let anybody know you're fasting. As a matter of fact, he said, uh, don't let your face be seen that you're fasting. Don't tell people you're fasting either. It's between you and God. That's what it's all about. So I'm not for that. But I do feel that there is need for it. And I think uh, there are times when the church is in a desperate state where you need to call the church to a period of, period of fasting, but not something that we do it every Thursday or whatever it is. That's a personal matter between you and God, and uh, so you need to settle that matter between yourself and Him. You're welcome, and thanks. For, I asked for you this week, by the way. I was by the lady that uh, sells the, the provisions, and I was asking okay. for you. Okay, God bless. Okay. Thank you very much for the call, Brother Williams. Thank you for your questions, as always. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. You can call and be put live on the air. The phone line is open and available, and the number to call is 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Our next question, was Jesus born on December 25th? Well, that's, nobody knows. Let's be very, very frank about that. Nobody's known. We, we know that the church, uh, quite frankly, put the birth of Christ uh, really to prevent the pagans who would come out of, of uh, paganism and join Christianity to have a rival festival. So it's just like people having carnival here and stuff like that. The church has activities so that Believers should not go, we know that. But we create an environment where an alternative. So I see nothing wrong with it, quite frankly. But nobody knows exactly when he was born. 
Uh, and if you feel your conscience bothers you that you should not do it, don't do it. But don't blame other people and condemn other people who feel quite easy at it. Because I can tell you this. I'm speaking from my knowledge of uh, Barbadian society. There are three days that people go to church in Barbados, irrespective. Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and December 25th. And what the church has done in, 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 uh, in, that, in the country there is that they see this as an opportunity to reach people with the gospel. So they have services on those days. December 25th, there's always a morning service in Barbados, normally 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning, because Bayesians from every walk of life will go to church early in the morning, 6 o'clock, every December, without fail. And the church is used to that as an occasion that when those people come, they preach about the, the, the incarnation of Christ, let them know what that is about, and uh, preach the gospel to them. So I, I, I don't see anything wrong with that, quite frankly. And But again, if a person's conscience bothers them, it's wrong to go against your conscience. But don't put everybody and, 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 and uh, label everybody heretical or false because they, they observe that. We're not, we're just celebrating his birth. There's nothing wrong in celebrating the birth of our Savior. You celebrate the birth of your child, what, etc., birthday, whatever it is. We celebrate the, the, the birth of great men who have done great works within society, etc., etc. So there's nothing wrong in, in, um, in, in, in uh, celebrating December 25th if you feel um, your conscience is not bothering you. And kind of a follow-up to that question. As a Christian, is it okay to steer away from traditions such as Christmas, Easter, New Year's, etc.? I feel that most of these holidays are just another means of capitalist mindsets. I think as humans, we are as simple, but yet strive to be as flamboyant as possible. I always think of the simplicity of Christ. He was just a carpenter. I know his disciples came from all sorts of backgrounds, but at the end, it's Jesus who they looked up to. Jesus wasn't rich. Has there ever been a person in the Bible that felt like an outcast beside Jesus? Well, to answer the question, we come back again to the whole matter of conscience, personal conscience. For example, you mentioned Easter, you mentioned Christmas, you mentioned New Year's. Uh, I mentioned the fact that um, I can't speak for other churches. I can only speak the church where I was from, that we see it as an opportunity. Easter is a very good one to to really preach on the resurrection of Christ, uh, preach on the, the uh, what they call um, Good Friday, preach on his, his death. So those are two opportunities that we use, and uh, we preach on the death on Good Friday, we preach on the resurrection, generally speaking. And, and those people who don't come to church any other time during the, the season, quite frankly, are now exposed to biblical truth. There's nothing wrong there. New Year's, we normally have an old year's night service. I think that's a, a good service for people to give testimonies, etc., share what the Lord has done for them over the year, and then to give them a challenge in respect to the New Year. Again, it's when people go to church, and uh, it's just an opportunity to, to get the gospel out, and etc. But again... If conscience bother you in respect to these matters, again, you don't have to do it. I agree with you that they become commercialized. There's no question about that. And I, I bother about that myself. But again, you can't use that as an excuse because everything, quite frankly, is commercialized today. What has to do is your motive, why you're doing what you're doing, and what's the reason you're doing it. If you have a good, solid biblical purpose, you can see how it can benefit in getting the gospel to people and it's not in violation to any scriptural principle. Go ahead. Nothing wrong with that. What about the question about has there been another person in the Bible that felt like an outcast besides Jesus? Anything come to your mind? Um, 
Well, I, all the uh, all the people who got saved after the uh, day of Pentecost would have been outcasts as well. Remember that when you became a Christian in uh, the first century world, your family disowned you. If you're a Jew, even today, yeah. if a Jew becomes converted, he's disinherited. I mean, so every one of those people that put their faith and trust in Christ and uh, turned away from Judaism lost their families, lost their social standing, and in many cases lost their jobs as well. So uh, they've always felt uh, people who have put their faith and trust in Christ. So um, maybe not to the extent that Christ uh, was, but certainly within the first century world, all of those uh, believers would have paid tremendous costs of turning away from the Jewish religion to embrace Christianity. And then when they refused to say Caesar was Lord, again, now the Roman the state turned against them because all they wanted the people to acknowledge that Caesar was curios. But yet, uh, again, uh, we were taught, that the, the believer thought there's only one Lord, the Lord, he was curious. So how can we then say Caesar's Lord? And that was all that was required. They didn't have to worship anything, just, but they refused. And they were rejected. So not only rejected by their family, rejected by Jewish society, but now rejected also by the Roman emperor and the, the state. So they had suffered greatly for the faith. Today, of course, that has changed. And we hardly suffer when we put our faith and trust in God. But people in Muslim countries yeah. face the same peril. If you're a Muslim and you profess Christianity, your family disown you. And by the way, you can be killed. Uh, if you're Hindu as well, and you turn from Hinduism to Christianity, there today people suffering martyrdom in, in uh, India by turning to Christ, like there's people suffering martyrdom in those Muslim countries as well. So they've always had, uh, when you you know, I've always had people who've had um, those, that type of rejection, etc. But uh, Christ, I don't know if you can say there's anybody comparable with him in that regard, but certainly the early saints suffered greatly for their faith. The passage of the Apostle Paul, I think it might be in Philippians, you know, shipwrecked this many times, whipped yeah. this many times. I got a passage that, in a quote from um, uh, when he was speaking sarcastically to the, to the, uh, the Jews. Um, Maybe I should. It had to do with. Oh, let me just get the reference here. Um, While you're looking that up, I'll just do a station sure. ID. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and we are glad that you are. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 kilohertz AM, online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And if you're in Antigua or a nearby island from 9 a.m. until 9 p.m. We also are broadcasting on English in English on 92.3 FM. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.20. Yeah, the passage, look at uh, Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 to 12. I was going to make the comment when we were dealing with tongues that some of the language that Paul uses in Corinthians chapter 14 dealing with tongues, Paul is using sarcasm, okay? Uh, as he uses throughout the... the uh, this epistle because of the arrogance and the carnality of these believers so you can't take everything that Paul says on face value he's very sarcastic in things he said uh, one of the classic examples is chapter 4 verse 8 to 12 read that for just a moment already you have all you want already you have become rich without us you have become kings and would you that you did reign so that ye might share the rule with you verse 9 for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sent us to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. 
We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Verse 11, to, dis, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And verse 12, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reveled, we ble- reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Yeah, that's the same thing you're talking about there, basically. That, the, you know, and, and this sarcasm Paul is using, he's saying, you know, you, 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 you're, you're rich, we're poor, you know, you're wise, we're foolish. He's using sarcasm uh, against them. And you'll find it in his writings in dealing with, because these are a very carnal church that is very pretentious. They, they believe that they're more spiritual than they are. And Paul really uses this kind of language. But that's an example of how the apostles view themselves and how the world view them. They're a spectacle uh, to the world. Next question that came in. Did Jesus ever say to keep the Sabbath holy, or was it just God to the Jews? You don't find any reference in either uh, Gospels of Christ commanding people to really keep the Sabbath. Uh, but again, to understand the, the whole matter of the Sabbath, you've got to understand the biblical teaching on, on dispensations. That under the Old Testament economy of law, there was a special day called Saturday that marked that, that, that day. Under this new economy, which is called the new dispensation. Did you mean grace, Sabbath? Sabbath, Sabbath, yeah. right. That's, that's another day, and that is a Sunday, quite frankly. It's called the, the Lord's Day, the Day of the Lord. So... Um, so, you know, it's not a matter of Jesus saying or Jesus not saying. In fact, under the Old Testament economy, the Sabbath was the mark that you were part of the Jewish society, part of the people who were called of God, part of God's children. Now, in the new dispensation of grace, uh, a new order, new covenant, you have a day as well that celebrates that, which is Sunday. But there's no, no reference in the Gospels that indicate that our Lord commanded anybody to keep the Sabbath. Oh, one other thing, Nathan. It is obvious that Christ had to live under the law to bring us from under the law. Galatians uh, chapter 4, I think it says that when the fullness, has come, fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, made of woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. <coughs> so he had to come and live and fulfill the law for us. So to bring us from under the law. So he had to observe the Sabbath, there's no doubt about that. So people use the idea that because Christ observed the Sabbath, we should observe the Sabbath too. But they missed the whole point of why he had to come and live, because the law we had broken the law, the law had to be fulfilled, perfectly fulfilled in every, every, every demand. He fulfilled the law for us, and on the basis of the law being fulfilled, all his righteousness is imputed to us. And now that law has been set aside, and now God deals with us on the basis of grace, no longer on the basis of law. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and Pastor is answering questions that have come in. If you've sent in a question tonight and we haven't asked it yet, uh, be patient. We will get to it here shortly, Lord willing. We have about 34 minutes left in tonight's episode of That's Truth, so encourage someone else to tune in before the program is out and... We look forward to your interaction. Also, if you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it, 268-782-1454, or you can call and be put live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. Next question. How is the law of attraction different from faith? Well, the law of attraction is one of the expressions used within the uh, Word of Faith movement uh, 
is teaching you that by believing in something so strongly that it begins to manifest itself in reality. In other words, ask, believe, and you receive what the mind can conceive uh, you could bring into reality. So it's actually creating your own reality. The whole idea behind it is that people and thoughts are energy. And uh, so by focusing on your thoughts, the energy can produce whatever you want. It's the same, it's the same thing of, um, for example, uh, positive thinking. Yeah. If you want to have a positive life, you have positive thinking. If you have negative thoughts, you're going to have a negative reality. It's all the idea that words and thoughts create reality. And uh, so you can create your own reality. It is part of shamanism, to be very honest. It's not biblical teaching. Uh, for example, suppose you want to lose your fat, you want to lose weight. You don't think of how fat you are. You visualize yourself being thin. And, and what will happen is that by doing that, uh, it will somehow lead you to being transformed to become a very slim person. Of course, it's quite ludicrous, but people go for it because, etc. Uh, so it's the same idea. Uh, positive thoughts produce positive reality. You create your reality, okay? Which is not biblical. Faith is faith not in my thoughts. Faith is faith in God. Right? What I mentioned before when we dealt with the faith movement, they 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 advocate faith in faith. Right? But that's not what the Bible is. Our faith is in God, it's not in faith itself. But they have faith in their thoughts, and their thoughts can create reality. That's the difference between uh, this law of attraction and, 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 and bibl biblical faith is in God. Uh, the law of attraction is faith in thoughts, because thought has energy to create reality. Wouldn't it be wonderful if positive thoughts made things come true. <laughs> I mean, think about it. You never have to get your vehicle repaired. You could just keep thinking every morning, every evening, think my vehicle is going to continue to work forever. Nathan, when I think of how uh, bizarre these ideas have captivated the minds of modern people, I quite frankly, uh, I, I, we are living in the age of blindness and deception and delusion because it doesn't make any... I mean, everybody knows... If I want a car, I can't think a car into existence. Yeah. If I want $50,000, I can't think that into existence. But how are these people on television, these, these masters of deception, able to get people to believe that? You know, I, I want uh, $1,000, so I say 10000 because, you know, okay. it's, it's, it, all I'm saying is that we are now in the age of unbelief, delusion, deception, and until we get back to biblical truth and get back to the word, uh, this age is going to become darker and darker, where people will become more confused and you're going to get more religious deception. It's, it's, it's just a, a pathetic stage we're in at this juncture. Tying in with what you're just talking about, a follow-up question. Why do modern-day teachers highlight the need to practice this law of attraction? Well, because... Uh, remember, it's linked to the Word of Faith movement, which is linked to the sowing the seed kind of thing, quite frankly. So it's, it's designed to make you optimistic. It's designed to... And uh, you will have people who give testimonies that they wanted a car, and they thought of the car, and they dreamed of the car, and they visualized the car, they're driving the car, and next thing they got a car. How do you, how do you dispute that? <laughs> so it, it's people who buy into things, and they're gullible, to be very honest with you. And I can't understand how people have become so gullible when it comes to these different type of things. But it's all about um, getting wealth and getting riches and uh, nothing biblical about it at all, quite frankly. 
Our next question is in relation to a YouTube link that was sent in, and we don't have time here on the program to uh, discuss the whole video or to listen to it, but Pastor, I know you watched it, and the general idea of it was a woman talking about why pastors don't deal with women's provocative dress, even within the church. What are your takeaways? What are your thoughts, Pastor? Well, quite frankly, uh, I am not too sure she's a, a woman pastor. She's a woman pastor. I would never endorse her being a pastor. If she is done a woman's ministry, uh, and I, I wasn't too sure exactly what her position is, but she had a lot of good stuff to say. She's a black American woman. She speaks her mind. She speaks very fluently, and uh, she is right about this matter. Uh, and she's talking about the uh, the provocative way in which women go to church today, and uh, and uh, it's the source of great temptation for men. I remember several years ago when our church was being done in uh, Antigua, uh, sorry, in St. Lucia when I was there, I asked one of the persons who came down to help build the church in America, and I asked the question, what's the greatest temptation that men face in the American church? And without a thing, he said it was the way the women dressed. Uh, and I understood what he meant. Uh, you got this tight-fitting, showing all their curves, all their private parts, quite frankly. They don't have any, they, they, their back is exposed, their bosom is exposed, their arms are exposed. It's like you're going to some kind of a harlotry house or something. And I understood what he meant. And I think that's exactly what she meant. And the thing I enjoyed about this uh, particular video, Nathan, is that she created a, 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 a tr track. And uh, it has, it's a colorful track that uh, really where she has on one side provocative dressing, showing you quite frankly what is immodest and in real terms. Yeah. And then on the other side, she shows you what is modest dressing. I thought it was a very good track, to be very honest with you. I wish I had one or two to be able to duplicate and, and, and distribute because I think that the same type of dress that she's talking about, I've seen it, quite frankly. And women need to be aware that your job is not to call attention to your body. That's not your purpose when you come to church, okay? Uh, people come to church to worship God, not to watch your body. And you can be a terrible distraction uh, in the church. So you need to dress modestly. And that means, dress modestly means that you need to dress with things that are loose, not things that are so tight that they can see every single crevice of your, your body, etc., etc. That is totally... And, and, and pastors should not... Now, people, you can't stop people from coming to church. Let me put it that way. Yeah. But you can deal with believers uh, who come to church. And uh, uh, pastors need to let people, certain people know that there are certain people who cannot serve in certain capacities, even though they profess to be believers and believe they can dress all they want to. You, we can't tell you you can't come to church, but quite frankly, you can't serve, and you can't be involved in leadership roles, etc., etc. So, and I think that uh, he's right about that. A lot of pastors are afraid to mention these things because people will stop coming to church. She was an example of a young lady that she was um, working in one fast food place, and this young lady used to do prostitution and stuff like that, and she got saved, and was telling, boasting how she got saved, but he said that when she came to work, she was dressing like she was a prostitute, quite frankly, and she got up the courage to have a conversation with her privately and said to her, you know, sister, um, you make a professional faith, you are now in Christ." And uh, you should not be showing your, your bosom. You should not be, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's. she said that um, before the lady was so pleasant to her, after that, 
there was no no longer any pleasantry. She was offended because she drew that to her attention. But again, I think that's the reason why pastors don't do those kind of things. They're afraid that they'll lose members, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, modesty is a proper way. Look at First Timothy chapter two, verse nine and ten, Nathan. First Timothy two nine and ten. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Yeah. Paul is talking modesty there. And by the way, um, the Apostle Paul is talking extravagance. Um, the passage is talking about not adorning yourself with jewelry and stuff like that. There's nothing wrong with a woman having on a ring, you know, having on an earring, whatever it is. But if you're going to have five earrings and two, five watches and change on your toes and things in your eye and your ears, your nose and your lip, I mean, that's stupid, quite stupid. You, you're not an animal. You're not a pig. That I, You ever saw somebody holding a, a cowboy having a thing in his nose? Oh, those things are totally improper, uh, you know, marking the body that Christ has given to you, the temple, etc., uh, and I think a lot of believers uh, may not uh, be aware that you don't want to be worldly. Uh, you don't want to look like the world. Uh, that's not how you attract the world. Uh, you attract the world by being different. Unfortunately, uh, Christians have tried to blend in with the world and consequently have lost their testimony and their influence. But um, there should be modest dress within the church. And I would say to people, people in the church, especially those in leadership roles, uh, they ought to be held responsible for practicing mod- modest dress. And one of the things she mentioned in the video, Nathan, is that a lot of these same women that dress so provocatively, they're normally allowed to do ushering, uh, come up on stage and sing songs and stuff like that. And she's right. Those people should not be allowed to do those kind of things in the church. The church is not a place for beauty pageantry. Places where God is worshipped and attention is drawn to God, not the woman's body or man's body either. Pastor, we have Codrington on the air. Codrington, thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question quickly, please. Yeah, the woman uh, um, that the dragon was holding uh, for um, trying to kill, um, who is this woman when, the, um, when he was trying to kill the baby? In Revelation? In Revelation, yeah. Revelation about 16, uh, I don't remember the verse. Yeah, what's the question? Her question is, um, this woman with a dragon was trying to kill the baby uh-huh. when the woman was trying to deliver her. Yeah. I just want to know, who is this woman um, who was trying to kill? And the baby was, um, I think the baby was Christ. Uh-huh. Well, the, 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 in the case there, uh, it's Israel. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you'll find that the, the way you know that is because of the the signs that are given there, the stars and the moon. You remember when uh, J- Joseph had a dream? You had the same reference there uh, to the stars and the moon bowing down, etc., etc. The picture given in the book of Revelation uh, is talking about the nation of Israel giving birth to uh, giving birth to the Christ. So out of a lady in Israel would come uh, Christ, of course. And if you read it, it said that the, the dragon... Um, went after the woman in the wilderness and the woman there is Israel that the dragon will quote in the last days try to destroy Israel so the woman there is actually the nation of Israel that gave uh, birth to, to the, the, the Christ child and it's very clear that going after the woman to destroy her by a flood if you read the passage is about the in the end times uh, again the Gentile powers will try to destroy Israel 
um, etc. But it has to do with with uh, the nation of Israel. I know you think it's Mary, so. But again, Mary was an Israelite, so she would be the one that bore Christ. But in that particular passage, dealing with the nation Israel and Satan's attempt to destroy the nation of Israel, so that Messiah would not be born. Cardinal, did that answer your question? Uh, I kind of but um, next week we're going to ask another question about um, yeah, John when John was um, asking about John uh, C and the angel when the um, Okay. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much for your call, Codrington. Appreciate it. Keep listening to the lighthouse and keep your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 838. We have a question that has come in via WhatsApp tonight. Good night, Pastor. Why does pain inflict us mostly at nighttime? Example, during the day it's bearable, but at night it's far worse. Well, I can't answer that. I'm not a medical doctor. I would suggest to you, though, that sometimes um, the weather has a lot to do with it. For example, there are people who are arthritic or inclined, and when the weather gets cold, and uh, recently, uh, I find it in Antigua from December, January, and February, very, very cold nights. As a matter of fact, yeah. it's so cold in my home, uh, and I, you know, I'm living in Wireless Road, I got to close the windows at night. I used to be able to leave the windows open. I can't do that any longer. If that cold air comes in, they can actually feel it. And I normally, when that cold air comes, I normally get some kind of a flu, or et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I don't know what, how to answer that question. Um, again, I don't have the medical knowledge to know how to deal with that. Um, but I would suggest to you that sometimes the weather has to do with it, and the time of the year has to do with it. Sometimes the year is, is hotter, sometimes it's colder. Those may be some of the other factors. But other than that, I can't, uh, I can't give you an answer. What about the concept that you know during the day you're busy, you're focused on doing things, accomplishing tasks, but then at night if you're in pain and you're... I'm just thinking off the top well, of Well, I mean, I think that's a good, a good, good idea. Yeah, the body is, hasn't had a time to rest. So you're going through all of this kind of thing, and then suddenly the boy now begins to thaw. You begin to feel the effects of what you've been doing. That happens, no question about that. Um, I find that if you haven't done something for a long time, and you start using certain muscles, man alive, I can't <laughs> believe it. I mean, it is so simple sometimes yep. that you wonder. But uh, it's just a mystery. You you know, it's you just and as you get older as well the angle you turn at suddenly, you can turn at a sudden angle and you have a back problem you never had before. Uh, you can get it off your knees and uh, you can have pain that you never had before. So age has a lot to do with it, but I also think you're right about that. Working during the day and then during the night, basically the body now responds to all of that energy they've exerted and the pain begins to happen. So I think you're right about that, Nathan. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive program. If you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air. The phone line is open and available, and the number to call is 1-268-462-7420. If you'd like to WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. If you have a topic that you would like us to discuss in a future episode of That's Truth, Please share it with us. Again, we want this program to be as practical as is physically possible. And one of the best ways to make a practical program is to discuss topics that are close to you, things that are being discussed around your dinner table, things that are being discussed in the bus on your way to town, and things that are being discussed and asked of you by your coworkers. 
Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.41. That's all the questions that we have come in so far. If you send in your question, we will interrupt what we're doing and jump in and answer your question. But until we receive your question, we are going to jump back into our teaching on the topic of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pastor, as we were talking last time, in fact, can you just give just a real brief summary for the person who has just tuned in this episode the first time and doesn't know what you've said thus far? Well, uh, basically, we're dealing with the topic of the Holy Spirit, and uh, we dealt with certain preliminary ideas, uh, for example, why the word ghost is used, um, why people say it's a force and a power and not a person. We explained some of the the translation translation problems that uh, have led to this kind of understanding. Uh, we clarified what the language of the Greek language teaches on these matters and, and made reference to grammatical genders and etc. different languages. So we kind of cleared up the whole matter that the Holy Spirit is not a just a power or influence or force, and uh, that He is a person. And we gave several bases for that. Uh, the fact that he has all the characteristics of personality. He has will. He has um, volition. Uh, will, he has emotions. And he has intellect. Uh, we also said that he uh, can have personal offenses committed against him. He can be grieved. He can be made sorry. He can be despised, etc., etc. And then there are certain personal things that he does. He teaches. He illuminates. He guides. Uh, he speaks. These are things that persons do. So we, I, I think if you were following the program, we pretty much led to the conclusion, the only conclusion you can reach, that the Holy Spirit is a person. Our Lord says when He is come, the personal pronoun, He, is applied to the Holy Spirit. And He said another, like Himself, would come. And of course, He was a person. And uh, He was God in the flesh. And of course, the Holy Spirit is uh, the third person within the Trinity. So we kind of um, ex- uh, dealt with that matter of ours, his personhood and his personality. The other thing we started dealing with with the fact is, who exactly is he? Uh, is he just a creature? Is he just an, uh, some kind of uh, spirit being that was created? And we said to you uh, on, and began to deal with the whole matter that the Holy Spirit is the third person within the Godhead, that he is God, the Holy Spirit. And we said that there were seven primary arguments uh, that helped to support uh, his deity. We said that he's called God in scriptures. And we showed you that um, in three or four different cases. One, when he was in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. We also showed you that um, he's called, so in the book of Corinthians, he's called Lord. Uh, he's called the Spirit of God, the Almighty. All of these are, are terms that uh, are terms of deity. And uh, we also have talked the fact that the attributes of deity are ascribed to him. And we started that matter of dealing with the attributes or the characteristics of deity, what makes God, God. And there are certain attributes or characteristics that uh, pertain only to God. And we talked about um, one, that the Holy Spirit is called the eternal spirit. Uh, only God is eternal. And Christ is called the eternal son. The Father is called the Eternal Father. Similarly, the Holy Spirit is called the Eternal Spirit. So he has that attribute, that characteristic that defines God. Uh, The other thing that we saw last time is that he's infinite in his wisdom. He knows everything, quite frankly. 
and, and that is a definitive characteristic and attribute of God himself. And then we point out that uh, he is omnipresent. In um, Look at uh, Psalm 139, Nathan, verse 7 to 10. We begin, I think that's where we stopped last time. Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10. Yeah. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Okay, talking about the Spirit of God. You can't run away from the Spirit of God. So he's omnipresent. Uh, we talked about his omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the mind of God. And also though he's omnipotent, uh, not by might, by power, but by my Holy Spirit, but by my spirit. And we looked at Luke 1 and Zechariah chapter 4, etc. The third thing that we, uh, that helps to verify his identity uh, in terms of his deity is that he does the works that only God can do. And... Um, we said, number one, that he is involved in creation. Uh, Genesis 1, uh, 2. Nathan, can you read that, please? Genesis 1, 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Yeah, the, the, Greek, the Hebrew word there is that the Spirit of God hovered over the water. Uh, part of the creation process. If you look at Job 33, verse 4, Job 33, 4 says, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. Again, God gives life. The Holy the Spirit of God is now the one that is involved in giving life. And then look at Job 26, verse 13. Job 26, verse 13 says, By his Spirit he hath garnished the heavens. His hands hath formed the crooked serpent. Again, notice again the, the Holy Spirit there, His Spirit of God is involved in the creation process. You know, in the Bible, they, we're told that God the Father, He's involved in creation. God the Son in, 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 first, in uh, John chapter 1 is involved in creation. And we learn now as well in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit is also involved in the creation process. One other verse, um, Psalm 104 verse 30, I think it's verse 30. Uh, Psalm 104. Got a verse 30. In verse 30. Yes. Yeah, it does. what does it say? Uh, Psalm 104.30 says, Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and they re and thou renewest the face of the earth. Yes, talking about the renewal process of the planet Earth and creating of the earth, I notice that the spirit, the spirit of God is involved in that whole matter. This is something that only God is involved in. God is always presented as the creator. The Father is presented as a creator, the Son is presented as a creator, and also the Holy Spirit is involved in creation. So this is a work that only belongs to God. He shares in that work, which would indicate that he shares in his deity. Then let, me, the, let me just interrupt you for just a minute. We have a question sure. that has come in from a listener here in Antigua. <clears throat> Pastor, when the dragon and the angels were cast out of heaven, where did they go? Well, we believe that they were cast... Well, I don't know in that particular passage, but we know that they invent, uh, you know, if you read Ephesians chapter 6, it says that um, spiritual weakness in high places, and the word there is in the heavenlies. So they were cast out of the third heaven, but they thought the spirit, the, 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 um, Ephesians chapter 2, um, uh, if you read that for me just a moment, chapter 2, I think it's verse 2. Ephesians 2, 2 says, 
wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's it. the spirit that's what I want. that now yeah, worketh in the children yeah. of disobedience. That seemed that the, the, in James, the realm of the heavens, but not the third heaven. A lot, you know, read John Milton, you find Satan down in hell, in John Hell, it's paradise lost, quite frankly. But that's not where he is. He inhabits the, 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 uh, the uh, heavenly sphere, heavenly sphere, not the third heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that seemed to be where he operates from because uh, it mentions here about um, the air, the spirit of the air, and also in Ephesians, it's talking about uh, these, angel- these forces in the heavenlies. So clearly Satan is cast out of the third heaven, but his main realm of operation, remember there are three heavens. There is the cosmic heaven, uh, there's the stellar heaven, and the third heaven. And he would more operate in in one of those other areas, but he doesn't certainly operate from hell, uh, as as, 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 um, Milton says in Paradise Lost. So just a hypothetical question here for new parents who are... Uh, teaching their children Bible stories and maybe have a, a children's book and there's an illustration there where Satan is in this lake of fire or in this. How do you balance the illustrations in a child's book with what we believe to be reality? The only thing to do that is to um, put them side by side. Say, listen, this is what is the artist's um, creative imagination thoughts on this matter, but this is the biblical truth. That's what you do. You just, you can't, uh, some of these things you, you know, I wish, I think some of these things need to be changed. For example, I wish that when they have a picture of Jesus, they had a blank without any color, you know, because that has led people to associate Christ with Europeans, and you've heard it talk all oh, the time. Yeah. And I understand, the, but again, Christ was a Jew, Right. And a Jew is more, um, you know, not really European. It came in the line of Seth. Europeans are out of the Jephites. But again, um, and I think that has led to some some confusion. But I do feel that there comes a time when you have to <coughs> tell the child, this is what is projected here by the artists, but this is the biblical truth. And I think children eventually would kind of grasp that. And sometimes I think those people who do these kind of things in um, Sunday school material, I think they really need to revamp some of those kind of things and put them in the proper order to so that to correct it. Same thing with some hymns. Some hymns are not good theology, as you would know. Yeah. But they remain in the book over long. And there's nothing wrong in changing the words to make them more biblical. Let the tone and the melody remain the same. But just, just correct it. I think that needs to be done sometimes. But unfortunately, we, we sing things that really are not, not true sometimes. But... The essence is true. A lot of it is true, but right. there are some errors that have kept in, and we, we just keep them there. Yeah. I know one of your favorites is uh, when we all get to heaven. Yeah, <laughs> we're all getting. We're not all going to get to heaven. <laughs> You've heard me say that before, right? So, for the listener who says, "But, Pastor, why are we are not all going to get to heaven?" What's your rationale there? Well, a person only gets to heaven if he puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, uh, and that's why. We tell people quite frankly, people are offended when you tell them, but no Muslim is getting to heaven. No Hindu is getting to heaven. No Taoist is getting to heaven. But no they're Buddhist. more sincere than many people in our Christian churches. Sincerity is not the standard by which you enter the kingdom. Christ said, I'm the door, the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So you have to decide whether you put sincerity as a measure of getting to the kingdom or it is Christ you must believe. I take his words. When he says that, no man comes to the Father but through me. 
It means nobody gets the heaven attack coming through Christ. Sincerity, the, someone has said the road to hell is paved with sincerity. Mm. Right? And that is true. A lot of sincere people, but they're sincerely wrong. There's no doubt about that. Let me ask a question. What if I sincerely believe that by uh, leaving here when I leave here and just uh, drive straight as far as I can and I'm going to get to, um, I mean, just, just I'm not going to turn off the road as I can leave straight. I can get on to St. John's. Mm. I end up in the sea. Yeah. No matter how sincere I am about that matter, it's not the way. There's a road I have to follow. Right, and the Bible is very, very, very clear on these matters. Um, what I would say to people is that you will be judged according to the amount of truth you have, the amount of light you have, and that's why there are going to be degrees of punishment. But again, there's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. There's no other way outside of Jesus Christ. Two questions: the first one being, where does baptism follow fall in this road to heaven or this this path? Well, nobody is saved by baptism. Uh, I think the Church of Christ advocates that, but uh, again, that's a, a fringe group, etc. But uh, the Bible is very, very clear that uh, baptism comes in as an identification with Christ, and it is also a part of becoming part of the, the body, identified with the body. Uh, but uh, baptism is almost similar, equivalent to circumcision in the Old Testament. You weren't... Um, going to heaven because you were circumcised physically but it, that was a sign that you belonged to the Jewish nation and there are people who were sin- depending only on, on circumcision but not their faith in God and Paul deals with that uh, about um, you know those that are circumcision those the true circumcision of the heart that's what it's all about circumcision cutting off the, the flesh was actually a sign of, of cutting, uh, cutting the heart etc etc so it was actually a symbol of a deeper meaning Baptism is one's identity in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and is a, a proof that you put your faith and trust in what? Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. That's what, it is what you put your faith in. It's not, you know, if you don't believe that Christ was, uh, was dead, or you don't believe that Christ was resurrected, you ain't getting saved either. That's exactly where the Muslims are. They say that Christ was never crucified, he was never resurrected, so how are you going to get to heaven? If you don't believe in Christ as the Bible presents him, right? Uh, and of course, they say that God doesn't have a son. So how in the world then are you going to get to heaven? Look, and by the way, they will tell you the same thing, that no Christian get into heaven. Uh, and the Hindus will tell you the same thing, no Christian get into heaven, only Hindus get into heaven. So when people think that Christians are believers and the church is just um, uh, intolerant and exclusive, every single major religion is telling you that the only way to get to, into their heaven is through uh, their, t- like Muhammad or, or through Allah, whatever it is, or through Vishnu. And so it's a clash of what you really believe. And this is where it has to do with the whole matter of where is the evidence for which it's true. And that's where history comes in, study comes in, and your, your documents, etc., etc., Bible prophecy comes in. There's no other religion on planet Earth that has any kind of prophecy like scripture. And this is thing that can be verified. So, uh, in terms of, everything rests in my judgment on the authenticity of the Bible, whether you believe the Bible is the Word of God or not. That is the gist of the essence of this whole battle. And when it comes to deciding on another religion vis-a-vis, it has to do with what you believe about the Scriptures. This is the, the, the standard by which you, you make your decision. I remember having a conversation with a young man in the last couple of years, and he... 
he claimed the name of Christ. He was doing, he was out even on a missions trip. He was doing things in the name of Christ. But we came up on the topic of repentance, and he said, you know what? I've never repented of my sin. I've always known Jesus. Even since I was a little child, since I was a little baby, I was communicating with Jesus. Pastor, how would you respond to someone who's listening tonight and says, you know what? I'm in that same boat. I've I've just always grown up in a religious atmosphere and a Christian atmosphere, maybe even even at Grace Baptist Church. I I think I'm fine. Well, I think that this is where parents have a role to play in in this whole matter. Um, taking your church, trying to church, and your children to church is something you should do. But it also has to do with at some point in time sitting down with your child and explaining the gospel. And uh, when you explain the death of Christ, for example, and the resurrection, your child should want to know why he had to die, right? That gives you the question, well, he had to die so that our sins can be forgiven. So what is sin then? So your child must be, it's like, you remember in the Old Testament, uh, they always had symbols. And the reason they put up stones is that the child in general would ask, Daddy, why did that happen? And then you give them the history. So it's an, uh, an evangelistic tool that we have in our homes that we should be dealing with our kids. But no child should go to saying, I've never repented. I don't know what sin is, etc., etc. I blame the parent for that. And uh, it's very unfortunate that that would be so. Can a person be a Christian headed to heaven and have never repented of Absolutely their Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And your basis for that is? Except you repent, you're going to perish. Jesus said that, and also John the Baptist said it. And uh, you look at Paul's writings, it's right there. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.